This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Professor Tom Griffiths. Tom is a historian and has written a book called The Art of Time Travel, which is out through Black Ink. That book won the Ernest Scott Prize for History, and Tom is delivering a lecture about the craft of history in the age of fake news. We spoke about this lecture and his book. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRFM with myself, Amy Mullins, and uh, as mentioned, I have with me Professor Tom Griffiths from the ANU, uh, and he joins me in the studio. Uh, He's down here in Melbourne uh, to deliver the Ernest Scott Lecture for 2017. It also happens to be the History Council of Victoria's annual lecture as well. And I'm welcoming Tom right now. Hi, Tom. Hi, Amy. Hi. Thank you so much for coming in. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. It's just wonderful to have you. Um, Your expertise is unparalleled, I would say, and um, you're certainly a historian's historian. Um, So it's great to have you with us. Now, um, you, as I mentioned, will be delivering a lecture tonight and part of our discussion will be around that. Um, You know, the first part of that uh, title of the lecture is The Craft of History and that in itself is an interesting way of talking about history uh, as somewhat a creative process. And you do talk about that in the introduction to your book, The Art of Time Travel, is that it is a very creative process, but it also has a lot of rigour behind it and it's fact-based and evidence-based. And the second part of that title in your lecture is In the Age of Fake News. So let's talk about, first of all, the craft of history. Now, you also have said that professional history started in the 19th century in Western Europe uh, and Australia then, you know, developed its own professional history history uh, since then, since the beginning of the colonial era, but probably in a more concerted way post-Federation, I'm guessing. Yeah. So, um, Tom, talking about or looking at Australia as an example of history, what, uh, I mean, what was the development of history professionally in Australia and how did it develop as a craft? It really took um, sort of professional form, as you've said, in the early 20th century. And it really also developed as a kind of footnote to imperial history. So early Australian history, as it was taught in universities, was very often um, the, the, uh, an example of the British Empire uh, and colon- story of colonisation. And perhaps the last lecture in the series uh, on British history might end up in, with the First Fleet coming to Australia. So it literally was a bit of a footnote to the, the British story, the story of the the British world. Mm. But at the same time as that was going on, um, see, people do history all the time, of course. It doesn't just happen in universities. And right throughout the 19th century, um, people who'd migrated here um, wanted to make sense of this place. They were very interested in its long Aboriginal past. They didn't really understand quite what that meant uh, and how, how deep and rich that was. But they began storytelling. They began writing local history. So history, I think, grows organically as well as being a kind of professional um, uh, import, if you like. So that's something I've always been interested in. Uh, And I wrote a book 20 years ago called Hunters and Collectors, um, not about the the band, but about (laughs) about, uh, the the growth of that organic um, history in Australia and historical societies, museums, and just the way history is a kind of instinct. instinct. You know, people need to make sense of where they are and where they come from. And so I've always been interested in that. Whereas in this book, The, The Art of Time Travel, I have looked more particularly at the 
20th century growth of professional academic history and I've done that by looking over the shoulders of 14 historians at work. So it's mm. not a, as you know, it's not an abstract sort of discussion of history. It's very personal, I think, intimate, even looking over the shoulders of people at work, at their desk, or as they walk the countryside or talk to people or um, just get the sense of place that they need to gain in order to write really compelling history. Yes. And these are also historians that have inspired you professionally as well. I'm sure that was one part of the criteria when you were selecting these historians or people who practice history. That's right. So they're all people um, that I've known or had an association with. Uh, Many of them are my teachers. I admire them and have learnt so much from them. And so it's a quirky personal selection. It's not a a, a canon or a best of or seeking to be representative, um, but they are all gifted historians and each of them offers a different window into the past. And Mm. the challenge for me as a writer was to think, well, how can I in a chapter, distill this fascinating dialogue that goes on in the making of good history between uh, present experience and, um, and, and what you discover from that journey into the past. And Indeed. it happens over a whole lifetime which I've tried to convey too. Yeah, and it is interesting because there's many dialogues happening. There's dialogues in the scholarship. So, you know, as you say, one of the greatest compliments could be reading others' work and that then informing your own work, but also a dialogue within, you know, internally. There's often a struggle. And then... um, One of the things, the kind of uh, descriptions that you provide that I found really um, useful was that history is kind of a sculpture and that, you know, you have the sources and the materials and you have too many of them and you need to have too many to be able to whittle it away into something that should have existed already. Is You know, when you get to that idea or you find that moment where you're like, yep, I know exactly what I need to say now. It's quite a rewarding experience, um, isn't it? It's kind of like Mm. a bit of a treasure hunt and you found the treasure finally. And it's not necessarily finding one source that's the treasure. Mm. It's really about bringing the richness of all the sources together to kind of sift through it. Yeah. Um, Oh, beautifully put. I agree. You know, it really is what makes writing history so exciting because you don't know where you're going to end up. No. (laughs) It really is a kind of discovery and exploration and it's quite intuitive and it's certainly artistic. And so I'm trying to show through these lives of historians the way in which you can be creative at the same time as being scholarly Mm -hmm. and truth-telling. So it's not that you're making things up, but you need imagination to be able to make those past people come alive, to make them believable. Yeah, it is a really exciting thing, a process. I know that might be hard for some people to relate to, but hopefully they will understand by the end of this conversation why it's so exciting. Um, And you talk about uh, how... It's historians are often challenged about the usefulness of their discipline and we see this very often uh, even nowadays when we're giving out grants for different research it's often suggested that uh, and you know we have these debates in the media about oh well you know these people got a grant for you know such an obscure topic researching the history of x uh, you know it should be going to medical research or something like that how do we share or um, help relate history to people and its importance um, and, you know, I guess its relevance for the 21st century in this era where, as you have, you're indicating in your lecture, uh, the facts are quite contested and it it does become confusing. Aren't historians and, and good history, like rigorous history, isn't it needed now more than ever? 
Mm, I feel so. And uh, you've just described very well, I think, this um, uh, compulsion to kind of live in the present, to make that relevance means that you must somehow always be addressing things on the surface. Mm. Uh, And what historians have to offer society is a kind of counterproductive insight. It is to say uh, that we might gain wisdom by letting go of the present for a little while, travelling into past other worlds and dredging them for insights and then returning to the present and speaking to that present and offering a much greater array of experience uh, and thought than we can have if we just dwell in the ever-present relevant moment. And the danger of much as a boon that the internet is and Mm. social media and so on, the danger is that it makes it harder and harder for us to let go of the present and therefore open ourselves up to deeper thinking, to linear thinking. I think that's in jeopardy with our connectivity. We need both. We do need deep linear thinking as well. And so I feel that what historians have to offer is in a way we're all paddling in the shallows of Mm -hmm. the internet. Um, We need to be led into the deeper water again uh, where we used to swim Mm, instead of mm. paddle, you know. And so there is a sense in which the past, all of human experience, that's what the past is. It's everything we've ever done everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> uh, of course it's relevant. Um, uh, that that should be remain available to us. And the, uh, the art of history, the discipline of history, is the way in which we can do that in a rigorous fashion, mm. in a way that um, is, is civil and uh, civilised and and public and can lead us towards truths. Yeah, and that's a really important point there about being civilised because there there are debates as well and people can get quite sensitive around issues that bring in a lot of moral and ethical dilemmas such as around slavery um, or genocide and it, it can become a very heated debate and mm-hmm. even, um, a, you know, a very current example that still continues to be very contested is the uh, so-called, well, I think it's a, a genocide, the Armenian genocide and the Turkish government believing that it, it wasn't and that's still an ongoing scholarly debate uh, and you know there's obviously holes in the evidence as well so that makes things difficult but I know that in your lecture you'll be talking about some of these areas of contested history and denialism and uh, and there was an example um, or an area that is quite interesting uh, that you were mentioning off air about frontier conflict so I'm really interested if you could share a bit more about that area of Australian history and how it's changed Sure. Um, Well, just right now, of course, we've had debates about statues and Australia Day and they're being called the history wars, uh, a phrase I don't particularly like, but it's useful in terms of explaining um, these debates. And and, uh, the the history wars, uh, an American term, uh, was really mobilised in Australia in the um, around the early 2000s when the... um, there was a challenge to the teaching and writing of history about frontier conflict, um, particularly Keith Windshuttle uh, attacked Henry Reynolds, but not just Henry Reynolds and Lyndall Ryan, but in fact the whole historical profession and argued that they were guilty of conspiracy and deceit and willful systematic um, fabrication. Quite a serious um, um, accusation against the whole profession. And what interests me in the debate was about, you know, was was it a violent frontier or was it not? How many Aboriginal people were killed during those uh, uh, encounters? Henry Reynolds had argued 
uh, perhaps 20,000. Uh, and Windshuttle was saying it was very much less than that and highly exaggerated and exaggerated for political purpose. What interests me is the way in which historians as a profession responded to that. Um, they welcomed the debate. Uh, they taught Windshuttle's work in university courses uh, as well as responses to it. It became a case study for thinking about historical methodology. It generated a whole new um, surge of historical research into the frontier. Well, what was the frontier like in the Gulf Country, in North, in North Queensland, in Western Australia, uh, on uh, New South Wales? You know, what was it like? And, and so in the last 10 or 15 years since this debate, there's been fantastic work by historians all over the country, including Aboriginal historians, uh, into the reality of the frontier. And what has emerged is a, a more profound uh, understanding of, the, uh, sadly, the trauma and the violence of that frontier. And it's resulted in, I think, those estimates of, again, sadly and grimly, those estimates of deaths on the frontier being revised upwards rather than downwards. Mm. But the example's telling because how did res historians respond to accusations as a profession? Um, they responded, as I think um, scholarly people should do, thoughtfully, over time, with good Research. Mm -hmm. They travelled into that past. It takes time to give a thoughtful response. It's hard to respond to these things immediately and indeed in some ways we, we shouldn't feel we always have to respond immediately. It's a good thing to say, do you know, I'm gonna, we're going to research that, mm -hmm. consider it carefully and going to come back with a, 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 a thought-through response based on evidence. Yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it's, well, I, I think it's quite obvious, but perhaps sometimes it's not in this day and age of, you know, many, like lots of information, quite a lot of conflict and certainly conflict is increased through social media as well in terms of debating issues. Um, I know that it's increased in around Australian politics on Twitter. When I first started, it was very reflective. Um, it's gotten a bit more combative um, in nowadays. But I want to talk a bit more about uh, the historical quest um, and the what you talk about in terms of what historians do when they are researching, when they are thinking thoughtfully and reflectively and critically about something. I mean, what is it um, that they do that's unique in terms of providing context and providing evidence and how do they do that? Well, one historian I admire, American historian Richard White, says um, that any inquiry into the past begins in strangeness, uh, that we have to um, in, in cultivate wonder about this strange other world, that so much so that we wonder how our own great-grandparents could have come from such a place and that what historians do is they move constantly between familiarity and strangeness. Our aim is to go into that past world um, and respect it for its in integrity and its own uh, right, uh, see the way in which uh, it is so different from us, um, but also to find continuities at the same time because mm. we have to return to our present. We have to talk to our fellow humans about, um, uh, about these earlier experiences. So you're constantly moving between, I think, um, familiarity and strangeness between distance and intimacy and it's that it's it, that's the kind of time travel that's going on yeah. i think the way historians 
do it is by immersing themselves in context. Mm. Um, and that takes a lot of time and a lot of work and a lot of energy. You know, um, uh, archives, even in the digital era, a paper archive remains a beautiful and enchanting place for historians, a place where you go, you are you go through purification rituals in order to enter this sacred place. You sometimes open documents that haven't seen the light of day since they were first preserved. You feel a kind of familiarity, intimacy with mm. these people, but also you know you're entering a very strange and different world that you have to interpret for your own society. So it really, I think that's a generate, that is a discipline. It is um, in every sense. It's a discipline just to kind of... Um, as I say, let go your present and mm-hmm. give yourself to that pastime f- with sufficient effort to be able to come to some new insights. So that's the paradox that you might be an engaged citizen with relevant and highly practical insights that come from this process of letting go. Yeah, and it's also a process of empathising and trying to understand where people were coming from at the time. And that's one of the things that I found has been more difficult for some recently, and I've seen this change over time, um, is that there's often sometimes a judgment upon the past. Well, we don't do that now. You know, they acted horribly then and had all of these biases and prejudices. And often some people can find it hard to remove themselves emotionally or at least to be able to then to empathise and understand and seek to, um, I mean, that's how you evaluate sources is to, to have an empathy with the people that you're studying and looking into. How important do you think that kind of emotional quotient or empathy is for a historian? It's vital, but we also have to discipline it because uh, they, those past peoples are not we can't assume they are like us. And if we just use empathy, we will turn them into ourselves. Mm. Well, they're often not like us because it is a foreign country. I think that's the other issue is that people can make that assumption too, that you can apply the same standards now to people back then. That's right. But, you know, compassion is another uh, emotion that I think drives history. And, of course, just the questions that we take from our present time always um, uh, very creative and um, and often political, and I don't have a problem with that. I think all history is political, and the the point is, a good scholar is tries to be transparent about that, reflective about it, um, share that with the reader. Um, in fact, good historians are always giving the reader and other scholars the grounds with which to disagree with them. That's what footnotes and references yeah, are about. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> that is the reason why I only buy history books with footnotes. Um, and it also brings me to that interesting tension between popular history, which really is very rarely footnoted and lightly endnoted, versus scholarly history. And you do talk about the importance of having clarity and avoiding jargon in scholarly history. How much do you think um, that is being achieved in Australian history, for example? In Australian history, I think we're pretty good. Um, Of course, I would like to see even more of that clarity um, because uh, universities, uh, the culture of universities can generate their own jargon. But within universities, historians, I think, are good plain speakers. And we do recognise that we have a responsibility to communicate with the general public. We want our books read by our colleagues, but we also want them on bedside tables around the nation because that's the way you change thinking. Uh, And the the inspiring thing is that um, in writing books, you discover there is a hungry pub- public out mm. there who really want 
to understand where their country comes from, who are in search of meaning and understanding, and they're looking for serious non-fiction to help them do that. So um, at writers' festivals and so on, it's wonderful meeting those readers from all walks of life who make it very clear they need you as a historian to be doing this work, and they're ready for your next book. They want to read it. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder just how, what a hungry reading public of serious history we've got in this country. That's very heartening to hear. And it also reminds me of uh, an anecdote you provide at the beginning of your book uh, about some French people that you were trekking with or walking with and their fascination and excitement to hear that you were a historian. Um, Could you just briefly share that little tale? Because I felt like that was a lovely illustration of, of how important history is in that cultural context. Well, thank you. Yes, it's, uh, I'm a keen walker, bushwalker in Australia. And when I'm in Europe, I love doing the long distance walking paths and uh, over maybe several weeks. And I was doing a pilgrimage trail in France and everyone else was French. And I got invited to a few uh, dinner tables in the evening. And one night we got to that conversation where you have to say where you, what your job is, what you, how you earn your living. And, um, uh, my companions were a psychological counsellor, a medical nurse and an air conditioning salesman. And then when I said, I'm a historian, there was this chorus of approval, <laughs> which really kind of surprised me. I didn't yeah. expect it. And their next question, didn't miss a beat, was, who are your favourite French historians? I love that question. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's such a confident question about their culture and of the role of historians in their culture. And they expected me as an Australian historian to know the names and they expected that they would know any names I offered them. It's pretty interesting. So that is, yes. um, I, they awaited my answer with quite some interest and, and eagerness. And so I did name a, a couple of French historians. Fernand Brodel mm-hmm. was one of them and they knew his book on the Mediterranean, wonderful history. I mentioned Emmanuel Loire-Ladurie, uh, who they knew. He'd written this fantastic book about medieval society called Montaillou. Uh, which I do recommend if people don't know it. It's a, it's a terrific read. Um, and and we had this great conversation. And then they said, um, and what about your books? Are they are they translated into into French yet? Um, and I said, <laughs> well, no, knowing they never would be. Yeah. And they said, oh, no, we're sure sure they will be. But it was this <laughs> this lovely serious conversation with people who weren't historians, but mm. serious readers and and thinkers, and who. Um, who really valued the role of historians in their culture. So that made me think, as I set out on the path the next day, I thought, I think I'd like to write about that in my own culture and mm. who might be the historians that I would use to tell that story. Can I show how historians really are engaged citizens? We're not kind of uh, dry as dust, locked away um, from society. We're actually very much engaged with it and often talking to issues that the public is um, seriously interested in. Indeed. And uh, as a historian, you very revealingly did your research before our interview and looked into my favourite historians and uh, tweeted about it. And one of those is Tony Judd. And he wrote this great book, Ill Fares the Land, which uh, my first ever Triple R experience was reviewing that book on air because I I selected it for that reason. It was just so inspiring to me. Oh, wonderful. What is it it that you loved about it? I love it too. Oh, it actually, it makes me want to cry when I start reading it because it's Mm. so beautifully, clearly written in a, it's passionate but reserved and it really gets to me because it's about government's involvement in humans' life and just how much it, it importantly 
certainly touches our lives and social democracy and the critical, you know, things that it offers people who are at the most disadvantaged. And obviously Tony suffering from Lou Gehrig's disease at the time was in America, but obviously came from the UK and was going through this health system that was very unhelpful and and minimal really and very expensive. Um, So, you know, he had a very felt need to write about something like that anyway and then, you know, explored his illness in other books like The Memory Chalet. But I just I just found him to be one of the most rigorous, open, you know, it's just he had all of the right things for me as a historian and, and was very transparent but just so articulate and um, and talking about the most important issues that a lot of people didn't want to talk about, which was, well, we expect all of these things from our governments but are we willing to pay for them? Yes. It's a really important question that most people aren't really facing head on. Yes, indeed. Um, and Tony Judd's um, perspective, historical perspective, enables him to look at the last 30 years, for example, is really quite weird. Yeah. <laughs> and this really relates to some of the things you were talking about with your earlier guest about, re- you know, history is a revolutionary exactly. art, isn't it? It is a, 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 it is a practice which uh, essentially can help us lead us to sensible and practical change and reform because it... You know, if things were once different, then so they might be again and they might be even better. Mm. I think that's one of the things that inspires me about history is uncovering rationales for things and how we can then, you know, replicate them or avoid them. Uh, you know, and, you know, a great example is, you know, World War Two. How do we avoid some of those social things happening again? And what really w- was behind it and the causes and the, the dynamics, social dynamics. So that's why I'm passionate about it. I'm really excited also that you're an environmental historian because I I think that's also a really important area um, of work. Just finally, in terms of you personally and professionally um, and your passion for history, what are some of the things, um, you know, whether they're topics or people or aspects of history that drive you and continue to make you want to write and research? Well, I am very interested in environmental history and it has become a field that I think is really exciting and stimulating now and also vitally relevant. Um, For example, uh, as we deal with the climate crisis, um, historians, I think, have a vital role to play. This isn't just about science. It's about human history. And I found myself reading a lot more medieval and early modern history, uh, particularly in Europe, because good historians are finding uh, really telling examples of how fragile are the relationships between climate and society, that, that small average changes in temperature can lead to quite major political and social problems and disease and so forth. And so in terms of helping our society understand why two degrees Celsius average temperature changes in the future, why that could be cataclysmic, because mm. it doesn't sound much, but we know from the last thousand years of human history that even small variations of less than one degree have been very powerful and, and disturbing change agents in our in the story of civilizations. So, I think history can help us understand the history of the science. It can help it, help us understand our current predicament, and it can help us under, plan better for the future because it gives us this these stories of the past that give us insights into how we have responded to crisis. In, in early eras. Mm, absolutely. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming in. It's been an absolute delight to have you. Thank you, Amy. It's been a pleasure.
That was Professor Tom Griffiths, who is delivering a lecture tonight at the University of Melbourne in the Melbourne School of Design's Basement Lecture Theatre. Uh, you can head along, look it up on Google. Um, it would be great if you register so they have an idea of the numbers, but I know it's free, so you can head along tonight. And uh, it's called The Craft of History in the Age of Fake News. And Tom's book, which won the Ernest Scott Prize for History, is called The Art of Time Travel, Historians and Their Craft. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.